This is a special edition of Macro Voices, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's Eric Townsend. I'm Eric Townsend, and this is the introduction for the preview of the new and improved Episode 3 of my Energy Transition Crisis docuseries project. If you were looking for the regular weekly Macro Voices podcast with co-host Patrick Ceresna about macroeconomics and investing, this isn't it. Regular Macro Voices episodes have three-digit episode numbers, and this week's episode will probably be the next one or a couple down in your podcast feed. For those of you who have already heard the original version of Episode 3, I'll give you a quick rundown on what's changed before we dive into the preview. This episode hasn't changed as much as Episodes 1 and 2. The biggest change is the analysis of how much clean energy is needed to solve the problem, which was originally contained in the original episode, has been taken out and moved to Episode 1. So the biggest difference is more what came out of this episode as opposed to what was added to it. The first five minutes and the final three minutes of this version are new content. Everything in between is basically the same message that was in the original Episode 3, except that several sections were deleted to eliminate repetition, and a few minor errors were corrected. But unlike the new versions of Episode 1 and 2, which were substantial rewrites, there's really relatively little content that's new in this version of Episode 3. So if you already got the gist of Episode 3, probably no need to listen again. We do want to crowdsource ideas for how to tell this story visually from you, our Macro Voices audience, and I'll have plenty more to say about that after the preview. Now, without further ado, here's the new and improved third episode. Episode 3, version 2.0, Supercritical Deep Geothermal Renewable Energy. I'm Eric Townsend. In this episode, we'll dive into what it's really going to take to replace the energy we now derive from fossil fuels with clean, environmentally responsible alternatives. This episode will be dedicated entirely to deep geothermal renewable energy and the technological advances needed to make it viable as a primary source of baseload electric supply. Let's start with a quick review of the problem we're trying to solve, which was explained in full detail in the first episode. By 2050, the global economy will require somewhere between 183,000 and 203,000 terawatt-hours of energy. We already have 23,000 terawatt-hours from renewables and other non-fossil fuel sources, so that leaves somewhere between 160,000 and 180,000 terawatt-hours of new clean energy we still need to find in order to completely phase out fossil fuels. Even with the most optimistic growth estimates for wind, solar, and hydroelectric renewables that I could fathom, we shouldn't expect them to provide much more than 34,000 terawatt-hours of additional supply by 2050. But since they produce electricity directly without the thermal inefficiencies of burning fossil fuels, we gave them credit for replacing up to 68,000 terawatt-hours worth of fossil fuel energy by 2050 meaning that they can only be expected to meet at most 35% of anticipated total demand. And that was being optimistic. From the 160,000 to 180,000 terawatt hours we need to find by 2050, even if we give wind and solar full credit for solving 68,000 terawatt hours worth of the problem, we still need to find another 92 to 112,000 terawatt hours, and it will need to be baseload power since we're already giving wind and solar double points for their efficiency, which only holds true if we consume the energy they produce immediately. All these figures were discussed in more detail in the first episode. So our mission is to figure out where to find at least 92,000 to 112,000 terawatt hours of baseload electric energy supply before 2050, so that we can completely phase out fossil fuels by then. But remember, if we can figure out how to go beyond just replacing fossil fuels and find even more energy than we have now, we can usher in a gigantic improvement in our quality of life and accelerate the pace of human advancement. So I prefer to focus on looking for scalable sources of clean energy that could provide the entire 160 to 180,000 terawatt hours of clean energy needed to replace fossil fuels by 2050. 
That way, we still meet the need by 2050, even if wind and solar capacity doesn't grow quite as quickly as the very ambitious pace contemplated in the first episode. And if they do, that extra energy becomes the icing on the cake that accelerates the pace of advancement of humanity and lifts more people around the world out of poverty. And I do believe it's possible by 2050 to add 160,000 to 180,000 terawatt-hours of new clean baseload energy beyond what wind and solar will provide, but only if we get serious about this energy transition and stop pretending that wind and solar alone are going to fully solve the problem. So let's make finding at least 160,000 terawatt-hours more clean baseload energy by 2050 our goal even though, strictly speaking, we only need somewhere between 92 and 112,000 terawatt-hours. Geothermal renewable energy doesn't get as much attention as wind and solar, because in its present state of technological development, it's not as promising as wind or solar in terms of the amount of energy produced per dollar invested. That means bringing anything remotely close to 160,000 terawatt-hours of geothermal energy online using current technology just plain isn't going to happen. But unlike wind or solar, which are already well-developed technologies, I'm convinced that a game-changing breakthrough is possible for geothermal if we can just figure out how to overcome a few technology hurdles that are holding it back today. If we can advance existing drilling technology to drill deeper and through hotter rock formations, geothermal has the potential to leapfrog wind, hydropower, and solar to become the most promising rather than the least promising of the four primary renewable energy sources. Geothermal power generation isn't as well understood as wind and solar, so let's start with an introduction to what geothermal energy is and how it works, including the reasons why it's not presently as economically viable as wind and solar. Then, later in this episode, I'll introduce my vision for the future of geothermal energy, which isn't possible yet due to limitations of current drilling technology. But as we'll discuss later in this episode... If we can overcome those technological limitations and figure out how to drill deeper and through hotter rock formations, geothermal energy could be a complete game-changer in our quest to replace fossil fuels completely. If you ask most people what our planet is made of, they'll probably say dirt, rocks, and the water in our oceans. But these things are just what make up the Earth's crust, which only accounts for 1% of the planet's overall mass. The crust isn't very thick, ranging from 10 to 75 kilometers on land, and even thinner under our deep oceans, where the crust is only 5 to 7 kilometers thick. The next 2,900 kilometers of depth below the base of the Earth's crust is the mantle, which is very hot rock, some of it solid and some of it magma, or molten rock, similar to the lava that flows out of erupting volcanoes. Then there's another 3,400 kilometers of depth to reach the center of Earth's core, which is mostly molten iron and other metals. The deeper you go, the hotter it gets. The Earth's core has a temperature over 5,000 degrees Celsius, or almost 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The deepest base of Earth's crust is about 1,000 degrees Celsius. Within the Earth's crust, the temperature gets hotter as you go deeper. A study by the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency concluded that if we could just figure out a way to harness only one-tenth of one percent of the heat in Earth's mantle, we could meet all our energy needs for millions of years. Put another way, all the energy we could possibly ever need is already right at our feet, or more precisely, just a few miles straight down below our feet. At those depths, the heat of the Earth's mantle, or even the deeper regions of Earth's crust, offer us all the energy we could possibly need if we could just figure out how to drill a hole deep enough to access all that heat that's right there below our feet, just waiting for us to figure out how to come and get it. The really hot rock that has enough energy to solve all of our energy problems is found at less depth below the surface of the Earth than our commercial airliners fly above the surface of the Earth. There are several different kinds of geothermal energy, but I'm going to skip the ones that don't offer a way to solve the impending energy crisis and just focus on those that do. To tap into the clean, free heat energy beneath our feet, we need a way to get down there and pump some of that heat up to the surface where we can use it. 
For decades now, the oil and gas industry has been perfecting technology which could be repurposed for doing exactly that. Oil drilling technology was developed to drill oil wells in porous rock formations deep below the surface, which contain crude oil in the rock's pores, sort of like a sponge made of rock that contains oil. The way an oil well works is that a hole is drilled deep into the porous rock containing oil, allowing the oil to seep out of the rock and into the oil well. Some rock formations are under such high pressure that oil flows to the surface all by itself, forming a gusher. When there's not enough natural reservoir pressure in the rock formation for that to happen, a mechanical lift pump is installed to lift the oil out of the well. Not all rock contains oil. In fact, rock that's full of oil is quite hard to find. The entire profession of petroleum geology was created to find the oil deposits so that they can be drilled and oil can be produced from them. But now let's imagine taking that same oil drilling rig to a rock formation we know doesn't contain any oil. For geothermal energy, the whole idea is to avoid porous rock containing oil and aim for dry, hot rock formations instead. In some places, like Iceland and Indonesia, which have a lot of volcanic activity, there are plentiful rock deposits not too far below the surface where very hot, dry rock can be found. This is ideal because the shallower the hole, the less it costs to drill. In other parts of the world, where there are no volcanoes bringing hot magma near the surface, you might have to drill much deeper to find the hot, dry rock formations that are needed to produce geothermal energy. But if you're willing to drill deep enough, hot rock can be found anywhere in the world. So for our first example, let's assume that we've located a dry rock formation not too far below the surface, which has a temperature of 100 degrees Celsius, the boiling temperature of water. We'll start by drilling a well vertically into that rock until reaching the depth where the 100 degrees Celsius rock formation exists. Then we'll turn the drill bit sideways and drill a horizontal hole several hundred meters long. Turning the drill bit 90 degrees and drilling a horizontal hole through solid rock several hundred or even a few thousand meters below the surface might sound like an impossible trick. But thankfully, the shale oil revolution was made possible by the commercialization of horizontal drilling technology for doing exactly that. Drilling long horizontal holes, known as laterals, through solid rock deep below the surface. So as daunting as it sounds, we already have the technology needed to do this. Finally, we'll drill another hole, similar to an oil well, which will connect the far end of the lateral we just drilled back to the surface. The result is a U-shaped passage which goes straight down several hundred to a few thousand meters, then turns sideways and runs several hundred to a few thousand meters horizontally through hot dry rock, and then turns up to provide a path back to the surface. Now we can tap into free energy from the center of the earth by simply pumping cold water down one side of this U-shaped passage. As the water flows down into the hot rock and then flows through the long lateral passage, the water is heated up to boiling temperature. The result is that we're pumping cold water down one hole and getting boiling hot water out the other hole without consuming any energy to heat the water. All we need to pay for is the electricity to run the pump that circulates water through the underground passage. The hot rock formation does the rest. The boiling water coming out the other side could be used to heat a building, or it could be passed through a heat exchanger to heat domestic potable water eliminating the need for a water heater fueled by natural gas or electricity. But as novel as this system might sound, the fact is that we're not getting enough heat energy out of this system to produce electricity or to do much else. We can heat a large industrial building almost for free this way once all the holes have been drilled. But guess what? Drilling those holes through solid rock costs a lot of money, and it will take quite a few years to break even. Let's up the stakes now and aim for a hotter rock formation. There are two ways to find hotter rock. One that always works anywhere on Earth is to just drill deeper. Remember, the deeper you go into Earth's crust, the hotter it gets. The other way is to find unusually hot rock formations closer to the surface. This is the reason that deep geothermal electricity production is presently only economic in parts of the world where there's a lot of volcanic activity, making it possible to find hot dry rock much closer to the surface. 
Let's suppose we can find a 150 degrees Celsius rock formation by drilling a little deeper than we did in the prior example. So we drill another U-shaped circuit, but this time the lateral segment is drilled through 150 degrees Celsius rock. Now it's a totally different story. We still pump cold water down one side, but the temperature of the lateral segment is much hotter than water's boiling temperature of 100 degrees Celsius. So what comes up the other side is not boiling water, but rather very hot steam. And that steam will come up under pressure because water expands considerably when it boils to steam. Now it becomes possible to install a steam turbine on top of the exhaust well and to produce electricity with that turbine. Some of that electricity can be used to pump more cold water down the intake well, eliminating the need for any external power to operate the system. The remainder of the electricity produced by the turbine can be sold into the electric grid and used to supply homes and businesses and to recharge electric vehicles. The steam coming off the steam turbine can be recovered in a condensing chamber and recycled by pumping it back down the intake shaft to produce more steam in the exhaust shaft and therefore more electricity from the steam turbine. If this sounds like a terrific source of clean, environmentally friendly electricity with no reliance whatsoever on fossil fuels, that's exactly what it is. But unfortunately, there's still a catch. Geothermal wells cost a lot to drill, and even at temperatures of 150 degrees Celsius, the heat energy recovered from them is only sufficient to produce a modest amount of electricity. High capital costs to drill the well and relatively low electrical power output results in pretty expensive electricity when you factor in the upfront cost of drilling the geothermal well. For this reason, geothermal electricity generation has outperformed wind and solar on a cost per megawatt basis only in locations where there's volcanic activity close to the surface. Geothermal electricity is still terrific news if you happen to live in Indonesia or Iceland, but for most of the world, the economics just don't work. Or I should say the economics just don't work quite yet. With a few advances in geothermal drilling technology, a game-changing breakthrough that makes geothermal far more attractive than wind and solar would be possible. And that's the reason I've dedicated this episode to discussing the technological advances needed to make geothermal a game-changer that could really help solve the global energy crisis that will begin in the mid-2020s. The amount of electricity we can produce from geothermal wells depends primarily on the temperature of the rock the well penetrates. Even at a temperature of 150 degrees Celsius, well above the boiling point of water, the amount of energy that can be extracted and therefore the amount of electricity produced just barely makes geothermal wells economic sources of electricity in volcano country, where 150 degrees Celsius rock can be found at unusually shallow depths. But what if we aim for even hotter rock formations, let's say 250 degrees Celsius, much hotter than the boiling point of water? We can produce a whole lot more electricity with superheated 250 degrees steam coming out the exhaust well and driving a much bigger steam turbine than we could ever have hoped for with 150 degrees steam. Hotter rock makes a huge difference in how much electricity can be produced from geothermal wells. But it's much harder to drill a geothermal well through 250 degrees Celsius rock than 150 degrees Celsius rock. Unless you're drilling in volcano country, you also have to drill much deeper to get to the 250 degrees Celsius rock. The deeper you drill, the more it costs to install the geothermal well, and therefore the higher the cost of electricity produced from that well. But the cost of drilling deeper is actually the easy part. 250 degrees Celsius is pretty darned hot. By comparison, aluminum melts into molten metal at about 660 degrees Celsius. The way most drill bits work is they grind a hole through the rock by pressing a very hard, sharp drill bit, often made from diamonds, against the rock at very high pressure, and then turning it slowly, grinding away the rock through abrasion, slowly boring a hole through the rock. This process is incredibly friction-intensive, 
drill bits used to drill through granite countertops above ground where the ambient temperature is only 25 degrees Celsius can heat the drill bit and the granite at the bottom of the hole by more than 100 degrees Celsius because the friction of drilling something as hard as solid rock creates so much heat-generating friction. When we take the same operation miles below the surface of the earth into solid rock that's already 250 degrees Celsius and then heat it up even more from there with all of the additional heat produced by the drill bit, temperatures rise to levels where even solid metal tooling begins to lose its strength. The engineering challenges are suddenly quite substantial. At 250 degrees Celsius, we're starting to approach the limits of current technology. The engineering challenges can be overcome with technology we already have, but overcoming them doesn't come cheap. The much higher cost of drilling a geothermal well into very hot 250 degrees Celsius rock would negate the benefits of being able to produce more electricity from the hotter rock. The hotter geothermal well will produce much more electricity, but the cost per megawatt hour won't be any lower because the hotter well costs so much more to drill. This conundrum of geothermal electricity economics is the whole reason that you don't hear very much about geothermal energy. It's a brilliantly innovative way to tap into a literally limitless source of clean energy that produces no emissions. But for now, it's generally less economic than wind and solar, except in volcano country where very hot rock is found much closer to the surface. Now I'll explain why I'm convinced that a breakthrough is possible to change everything, making deep geothermal a big contributor to the energy transition. The shale oil revolution of the 20-teens was enabled by two principal technological advancements. The first was horizontal drilling, the ability to drill an oil well down to the depth where oil is abundant, then turn a corner and drill a long horizontal hole through the rock at the optimal depth for recovering oil. That horizontal segment of the well deep below the surface is called a lateral. The second major technology breakthrough behind the 20-teens shale oil revolution was hydraulic fracturing. This involves pumping water and sand into the newly drilled lateral and then subjecting it to extraordinary pressure shocks that literally crack the rock around the edges of the lateral. The purpose of the sand is that it becomes wedged into the cracks in the rock, preventing them from closing again after the pressure is removed. This process allows much more oil trapped in the rock to flow into the lateral and be pumped to the surface. The shale revolution began with natural gas starting in 2006. By 2010, shale oil became a hit as well. By 2011, oil production really started to take off. By 2017, U.S. production set a new record high, eclipsing the prior record set when conventional production peaked in the early 1970s, just as Hubbard predicted it would. Now I have a quiz for you. Recall that the shale oil boom began in 2006 with natural gas, and shale oil hit the stage by 2010. The media hailed the brand new technology of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing as the technological breakthroughs that made it all possible. Can you guess when the very first horizontal oil well was drilled using this breakthrough new technology of horizontal drilling? Was it 2005? 2003? 2001? Or... 1929. Uh, okay, is that a typo? Is that supposed to say, must, it's supposed to say 1999, right? Wrong. The correct answer is 1929. That's when horizontal drilling really was a brand new technology. And that's when the first oil well was drilled using horizontal drilling. Hydraulic fracturing is a much newer technology. The first successful commercial application of hydraulic fracturing wasn't until 1950. Yes, you heard that right, 1950, fully six decades before the shale oil boom really took off. Uh, okay, what the heck is going on here? If the technologies that made the shale oil boom possible had all been invented by 1950, why didn't we start using them much sooner? This is a critically important point to understand, and in just a minute I'll explain why it has everything to do with making a breakthrough in geothermal energy. The oil industry knew all about horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing for decades before they were commercialized at scale. The reason they went unused is simply that they were expensive and there was no economic justification for using them. 
Does that sound familiar? It should, because the whole reason that horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing went unused for fully six decades after they'd both been proven to work is exactly the same reason that deep geothermal isn't popular now, because the economics don't quite work yet. And the expense of drilling deep geothermal wells through really hot rock is hard to justify economically. In 2005, when conventional oil production peaked globally and offshore drilling was becoming more popular, the oil industry already knew all about horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. But they'd done their homework and figured out that it wasn't economic to employ those technologies with anything less than $85 per barrel crude oil prices. At that time, oil had never commanded a price anywhere close to $80 a barrel in all of history, so it made no sense to deploy these decades-old technologies, which were too expensive to be economic. But then oil prices moved dramatically higher in early 2008, setting an all-time record price of $147 per barrel before the great financial crisis took hold and crashed oil prices back down below $40 a barrel. Horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing were definitely not economic at $40 a barrel, but the most visionary entrepreneurs in the oil patch read the proverbial writing on the wall and started making plans. By 2010, oil prices were back over $80. Horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing finally became economic, and the rest is history. U.S. oil production took off, and by 2017, U.S. production had eclipsed its prior record level from the early 1970s, something most experts thought impossible. Now, here's the most important part of this story I really want you to take to heart. In late 2014, Saudi Arabia changed its competitive strategy and allowed oil prices to crash all the way down to $27 a barrel by early 2015. Skeptics immediately declared the shale revolution to be dead and predicted fracking would never be economically viable ever again. The reason they were dead wrong is that by then, the industry had learned to optimize horizontal drilling and fracking technologies, making them much more cost-effective than just a few years earlier. Suddenly, a case could be made for drilling and fracking new shale wells with crude oil prices as low as $40 a barrel because economy of scale had transformed previously expensive niche technologies into much more affordable mainstream technologies. By 2015, horizontal drilling and fracking could be economic at oil prices half the break-even threshold for using those technologies just five years earlier. Now let's return to the topic of deep geothermal clean electricity. If we take a narrow view and just focus on the immediate economic balance point, deep geothermal is very hard to justify. Drilling geothermal wells deep enough to get to really hot rock is expensive, and drilling through hot granite at those temperatures starts to challenge the limits of current drilling technology. But let's take a step back and consider the bigger picture. We already have an extremely well-developed oil and gas industry, which has become expert at cheaply and efficiently doing one thing incredibly well. That one thing is drilling wells deep below the surface, then turning them sideways to form laterals. Between 2010 and 2016, the cost of doing that was cut almost in half thanks to innovation, hard work, and economies of scale. But investment in that industry is in steep decline now because everyone agrees that the age of fossil fuels needs to be brought to an end. Long-term investment is almost unheard of in oil and gas because everyone knows that governments around the world are united in the net zero initiative and that oil and gas will be phased out just as soon as we can find viable replacements, something that will actually take decades longer than most people realize. What if we stopped vilifying the oil and gas industry as public enemy number one as a matter of government policy and instead supported that industry while giving it a new dual mandate that could extend its life indefinitely? Part one of that mandate would be to keep producing oil and gas for as long as necessary so that society can continue breathing. Part two of that mandate would be for the oil and gas industry to evolve itself over time, transforming into the clean geothermal electricity industry of the future. What if the smartest young engineers choosing careers, who avoid oil and gas like the plague now because they see it as a zombie industry, 
were instead presented with a very different picture. What if they saw entering the oil and gas industry now as a stepping stone to becoming the geothermal renewable baseload energy pioneers of tomorrow? And what if we actually had leadership in government that was smart enough to recognize that the best way to achieve net zero policy goals is not to scapegoat the oil and gas industry as the bad guys, but rather to create incentives for them to become the heroes of the climate transition by redirecting every bit of ingenuity and experience they have at drilling holes through rock and using those skills to revolutionize geothermal energy and make it economic at scale just like they did for shale oil and gas. Geothermal is currently a niche field that doesn't receive enough investment capital to make meaningful progress at the pace needed to solve the global energy crisis. But what if all the talent that made the shale boom possible were refocused on geothermal? How long do you think it would take before geothermal suddenly became more economic than wind and solar? It took the U.S. oil and gas industry less than a decade to commercialize horizontal drilling and fracking, cut its cost in half by optimizing its design and deployment, and then make the United States the biggest producer of crude oil in the history of planet Earth by 2019, something nobody thought remotely possible in 2010. Do you really think that figuring out how to find hot, dry rock deep underground and then drill holes through it economically is beyond their abilities? I sure don't. But I also know that there's no way for them to be the ones to solve the energy crisis with a geothermal energy revolution on par with the shale revolution if we continue to make it public policy to scapegoat them as if they're our enemies. We need to stop thinking of oil and gas as an industry we need to get rid of and instead think of it as an industry that needs to be repurposed as the clean geothermal energy industry. What we need to do away with are the politicians who stand in the way of progress by making enemies and scapegoats of the very people who are most qualified to help solve the real problem at hand. Now let's return to our discussion of the current state of the art in geothermal energy because the story definitely doesn't end at 250 degrees Celsius. Things really start to get interesting at 374 degrees Celsius and hotter. Why that specific number? Because with the combination of temperatures above 374 degrees Celsius and very high pressures, more than 218 atmospheres, hot water takes on completely different properties than water or steam as you and I know it. Scientists call it supercritical water, and it could be a game-changer for deep geothermal energy because it can carry fully ten times as much heat energy to the surface as regular water or steam. But now we're really going to hit some technological barriers. 374 degrees Celsius is the minimum threshold temperature for producing supercritical water. Let's assume that we'd need to drill laterals through 400 degrees Celsius rock in order to heat the water we pump through it to 374 degrees Celsius. After all, just pumping water through the laterals will cause the rock to cool slightly, so we need to start with a rock formation a little hotter than the water temperature we ultimately need. 250 degrees Celsius was already pushing the limits of what's possible with current drilling technology. It's impossible to drill through 400 degrees Celsius rock using a normal drill bit that uses friction to grind through rock. Adding the heat of friction pushes the temperature even higher, and almost any drilling equipment anyone has ever invented would literally melt at those temperatures. There are already a couple of experimental approaches to solving this problem. One is known as hammer drilling, where instead of holding the drill bit against the rock being drilled at high pressure, the drill bit is instead intermittently hammered into the drill hole. This technique has already been employed in at least one experimental geothermal project where the goal is to reach the temperature threshold for producing supercritical water. Another experimental technology is the brainchild of billionaire entrepreneur Robert Friedland, founder of the Ivanhoe Mining Empire. That technology replaces drilling with an entirely new approach called spalling. With spalling, there's zero pressure between the drilling bit and the rock. It works by zapping the rock being drilled with pulses of incredibly high-energy electricity, which only last for nanoseconds. Think of it as being like tasering the rock instead of drilling it. 
This process literally vaporizes the rock formation for just a tiny fraction of a second, allowing the spalling operation to proceed without adding any heat from friction to the rock being drilled or to the tooling. That technology is still experimental, but it has the promise of someday making it possible to spall geothermal wells in rock that's 400 degrees Celsius or even hotter. To be sure, we're talking now about experimental drilling and spalling technologies, which are not ready for prime time quite yet. And as of this recording, geothermal wells capable of producing supercritical water are not yet practical or economic. But I want you to focus on what's possible, not just what we have today. We literally sent a man to the moon more than 50 years ago. That was an incredible technological achievement, and it was possible only because we had political leadership focused on making the most of our technology industries rather than on scapegoating them as villains in sophomoric political theater. I'm going to paraphrase the words of U.S. President John F. Kennedy from his infamous May 1961 speech calling for a moon landing before 1970. I believe that all nations on this planet should commit themselves to figuring out how to drill holes through hot rock over 374 degrees Celsius and to commercialize a process for doing so economically before this decade is out. We can't get through the coming energy crisis without true leadership, and that's exactly the kind of message we need to hear from our elected leaders. The people with the skills needed to solve our greatest challenges need to hear that government is going to have their backs, not scapegoat them as villains, and that we will all come together to work in partnership to bring about the technological advancements needed to make economic supercritical geothermal wells commonplace by the late 2020s, if not earlier. And by the way, if I were the coach assembling the dream team for that mission, my first draft picks would be the men and women of the U.S. oil and gas industry, who figured out how to commercialize horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, cut their price in half, and then use those technologies to make the United States the biggest oil producer in the world, all in less than a decade. President Kennedy would be proud if he knew that story. President Biden and other politicians with his attitude toward the oil and gas industry need to wake up and stop looking a gift horse in the mouth. These are the people who are the best qualified to develop and commercialize game-changing, deep, supercritical geothermal energy, and they're not our enemies. Do you want to know what the ultimate game-changing scenario would be in which geothermal energy could literally bring about another acceleration in the advancement of human society on the scale of the steam engine and the age of oil, while at the very same time eliminating carbon emissions and the need for fossil fuels completely? Let's take this discussion of advanced geothermal energy a step even farther and consider the scenario of drilling to the bottom of the Earth's crust and drilling laterals through 600 degrees Celsius rock instead of 400 degrees Celsius rock. Forget the supercritical water and replace it with a closed-circuit molten salt circulation loop to move heat energy back to the surface even more efficiently than supercritical water. With a continuous supply of 600 degrees Celsius molten salt, we could produce enough electricity to meet our energy needs for the next 10,000 years. Now, at this point, I'm sure the geologists and petroleum engineers in the audience are rolling on the floor laughing their tails off, ridiculing me as an imbecile who obviously has no clue how impossible it would be to drill laterals through 600 degrees Celsius rock formations. Just proposing to drill laterals in 400 degrees Celsius rock already tests the limits of what's theoretically possible, and 600 degrees Celsius would add a full order of magnitude of engineering complexity to the problem. President Kennedy knew that his May 1961 speech proposing a mission to the moon had been received by some scientists and engineers as the ramblings of a lunatic politician with no clue about the engineering challenges involved. So in 1962, he gave another speech, saying this to the students and faculty of Rice University. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do the other things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. He was trying to acknowledge the challenges involved and rally the country around a common goal of great difficulty. And he succeeded. 
So when I propose a hypothetical closed-circuit molten-salt circulation loop geothermal well with laterals drilled through 600 degrees Celsius rock, I do so not because I'm so naive as to think that doing that is easy, but precisely because I know how much is at stake if we could somehow figure out a way to pull it off. The steam engine in the age of oil ended human slavery, got the majority of us off the hook for having to work on farms, made widespread university education possible, and enabled the development of the modern world we now live in. We could have another acceleration of the pace of human advancement on that scale if we could just perfect a process for economically drilling geothermal wells anywhere on Earth in sufficient scale to pump at least 180,000 terawatt-hours of heat energy out of them globally on an annual basis by 2050. And if we could figure out how to drill laterals through 600 degrees Celsius rock, we could easily pump twice that much heat out of them. So I have a serious question for the professional petroleum geologists and engineers I know we have in the audience. Look, as a former technology entrepreneur and engineering manager, I really do have an appreciation for how monumentally challenging it would be to figure out a way to drill laterals in 600 degrees Celsius rock deep in the Earth's crust and circulate molten salt through them. But here's my question. Is that really and truly harder to achieve than it was to send a man to the moon in the 1960s? Is it even harder than that? Really? For context, remember that in 1961, when Kennedy gave that famous speech, electronic ignitions for production cars hadn't even been introduced yet. And Kennedy declared that we should literally build spaceships, travel a quarter billion miles to the moon, land there, take a few selfies, and then fly back to the Earth. Now, I get that 600 degrees Celsius is awfully hot, but is drilling holes in really hot, really deep rock really and truly harder than traveling to the moon and back in the 1960s? I'll give you a head start. I know a company in Denmark that's already commercialized a molten salt circulation pump with magnetic levitation bearings designed for continuous duty at up to 700 degrees Celsius for 10 years without service. Now, geology is not my field, so I have no idea whether the rest is possible. But what I do know is that the benefit to society, if we could somehow pull it off, would be much greater than going to the moon. The energy crisis we're headed into is going to be a really big deal. We literally cannot feed all 8 billion inhabitants of this planet without the energy we now derive from oil. We're a long way from running out of oil but we're at very high risk of a supply-demand imbalance that will force energy prices dramatically higher. Mass starvation and resource wars are very real possibilities. The stakes couldn't be higher. So we need to prioritize solving the coming energy crisis with the same kind of commitment we gave to the space race. Nothing is more important to humanity than solving this energy crisis. To summarize this discussion of geothermal energy, to my thinking, Two key points differentiate geothermal from the other two popular renewable energy sources of wind and solar. The first is that I see clear and obvious technology breakthrough opportunities for geothermal, which could be total game changers. I'm not aware of any similar breakthrough opportunities for wind or solar. The second key point is that geothermal also offers the ability to produce baseload electric supply that runs 24-7 not just when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. That means geothermal is a perfect candidate for the 65% of energy demand that intermittent renewable sources like wind and solar can't meet. For those who feel committed to the idea that our energy strategy should focus exclusively on renewables, this is a match made in heaven. If we could just figure out how to overcome a few technological hurdles, we could form a realistic energy strategy centered on geothermal providing the baseload supply and wind and solar providing the rest of the energy we need. And we don't even need to achieve supercritical temperatures over 374 degrees Celsius for that to be possible. A geothermal energy revolution that makes it possible to drill geothermal wells through 250 degrees Celsius rock as cheaply and easily as we drill shale wells today would be enough progress to make geothermal economically viable for baseload power generation. 
the key takeaway from this episode I really want you to focus on is that we already have a well-developed oil and gas industry, which is expert at efficiently and economically drilling lateral wells in rock formations deep below the surface. That industry knows its days are numbered and already needs to reinvent itself. What could be better than a strategic plan to repurpose the oil and gas industry on commercializing and perfecting geothermal well drilling just like they perfected shale oil production? The things I've described in this episode aren't possible today, but in my opinion, if anything can change that and make them possible, it would start with a complete change of government attitude toward the oil and gas industry. The people with both the skills and the track record to pull off a clean geothermal electricity revolution are not our enemies. Remember, the oil and gas industry aren't the ones polluting the environment by burning their own products, and they aren't the ones setting the policies that have failed to offer us alternatives to those products. All they do is produce those products, which the rest of us are addicted to and can't live without. It's true that big oil supplies us with the fossil fuels we're addicted to, but we're the addicts who keep burning them. They're just supplying us with something we can't live without because our policymakers have failed to forge a realistic plan to provide alternatives on the scale that we need them. We need to stop blaming the suppliers of fossil fuels for our own actions of burning fossil fuels and recognize that the people supplying the fossil fuels that we burn today have just the right skills to supply us with clean geothermal energy tomorrow. It's our policymakers who need to be held to account, not big oil. And the policymakers' favorite trick for ducking accountability for their own failures is to scapegoat big oil as the bad guys to deflect blame from themselves. Don't fall for their tricks. The problem isn't oil companies. The problem is a complete lack of alternatives to burning petroleum products and a political class that's already wasted two full decades of precious time pretending that wind and solar alone will solve everything, when in reality, after two full decades of government subsidies, they still provide less than 2% of the energy we need to keep society up and running. It's not the oil company's fault if they have no competitors and the government has done next to nothing to encourage meaningful competition. Deep supercritical geothermal energy was the first of two energy sources I'm aware of that could realistically provide the energy we need on the scale we need it to solve the coming crisis. The remaining two episodes in this docuseries will focus on the second one, which, unlike geothermal, doesn't depend on technological breakthroughs that haven't happened yet. I hope you enjoyed this preview. Please remember, this was just a preview of the audio track. And please, do not promote this project on social media quite yet. Let's keep this inside the Macro Voices community until the video version is ready for widespread consumption on YouTube. The plan is to tell this story in pictures in a video documentary series, and I'm starting to form a passionate team of listeners who want to help produce the video version. We'd love to find a film student looking for an unpaid internship to add to the team. We'd also love more help from the Macro Voices listener community. We'd like to crowdsource your ideas for how to best tell this story visually. What are the best graphs, charts, visual images, and video clips to tell the story that you're hearing in the narration on the podcast? We're working on figuring that out ourselves, obviously, but if you have ideas you'd like to contribute, we'd love to hear them. So here's the plan we came up with. If you go to the description of this preview podcast on macrovoices.com, you'll find a download link you can use to download the .pdf file containing the narration script for the entire five-part series with each paragraph numbered. If you have a graph, chart, image, or video clip that you think would help tell the story, or just an idea for how we should visually tell the story for a particular paragraph, please send an email to us at energydoc at macrovoices.com and include the paragraph number or numbers that your suggestion pertains to in the subject line. 
That way, when we edit that episode, our video editor will be able to search the emails we receive by paragraph number. So it's important to get the paragraph numbers into the subject line of the email. We'll use them to source ideas on how to tell the story visually from your suggestions. If you have several different, completely unrelated suggestions, it's best to send them to us in separate emails with the relevant paragraph number in the subject line of each email, since that's how we'll be sorting through the emails that we receive. Please tell us if you know that the chart or image or video clip that you're emailing us is copyrighted. But even if it is, don't let that stop you from sending it to us. If we receive copyrighted materials, we can either solicit the copyright owner for permission to use them, or we can just be inspired by your idea and either make our own chart or look for another similar chart or image or whatever it is that isn't copyrighted. We're planning to invite a select group of listeners who consistently send us really good suggestions to join a group of reviewers who will be given access to a restricted preview area on the website where they can view early drafts of the videos and give us feedback through the editing and production process telling us how we can improve our early drafts on the videos. That group will be invitation only and invitations will be sent to listeners who submit the best ideas and graphics per the process that I've already described. Finally, just so you know what to expect, the comments that I've just made after the preview of the episode itself are going to be identical for the previews of the second versions of episodes one, two, and three. So once you hear this last bit that I've just said, there's no need to listen again to what comes after the preview of the episode itself, unless you want to hear a repeat of this message. The comments before the episode will be different in each episode and will overview what's changed in that episode since the first version. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this docu-series. I'm really excited about it. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at www.macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly Research Roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. For more information, visit macrovoices.com. <laughs>